you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How do we foster curiosity and innovation in kids? How does a master's degree in marriage and family therapy sharpen your business skills? And how important is human uniqueness? Listen in for the thought-provoking answers in today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. My guest today is a curious Canadian. I won't give too much away just yet, but his focus on the importance of uniqueness prompted me to look up this quote by Salman Rushdie. He says, human beings, you see, do absolutely two primary things. We see alike and unlike. Like becomes, in literature, simile and metaphor. Unlike becomes uniqueness and difference, from which I believe the novel is born. Similarities and differences drive the uniqueness of human culture. Without similarities, we would have no common ground upon which to connect. Yet without the differences, we would have no reason to exist because another person could just as easily take our place. Teenagers are at that point in their lives when they are just beginning to find out what makes them unique. We found the environment we create in the Inventors Bootcamp to be one of those magical places where uniqueness and creative exploration grow. Every single class we can honestly say, I've never seen that before. Students never cease to amaze us, like the bottle-top vampire security system built by three teenage girls last summer. The new skills students learn and the uniqueness they bring to the Inventors Bootcamp is an unforgettable experience. To learn more about Inventors Bootcamp, visit ttinvent.com and click the Inventors Bootcamp button. As with most of our guests, I can honestly say that Caleb Simone Gundel is unique. His perspective on business, seen through the lens of both a curious innovator and a trained marriage and family therapist, is truly one of a kind. Let's dive in and pick the brain of a truly deep thinker. So my guest today is Caleb Simone Gundel, and Caleb uh, started off with a master's in marriage and family therapy and has taken that into the business world where he's been a production manager recently uh, for a large custom steel fabrication company. And he lives in southeast Saskatchewan, Canada, and recently started a podcast called Only You Forever. Uh, he describes himself as having been in leadership and management, managing other people's companies for a while, and is now uh, starting the journey of entrepreneurship. Tell us a little more about yourself, Caleb. Thanks, Steve. I graduated with my undergrad degree as Bachelor of Science back in 98 and went straight into the business world because that's where the opportunities were at the time. I loved biology. I actually started in business in school, but I found it so boring that I switched to biology. And I just loved the whole living systems concept and the challenge of that and getting into molecular genetics and all that good stuff. So that was really cool. And went into business, worked in business for several years. And after a period of time, you know, I started to learn that I really sucked at relating to people as it, both in management and even 
trying to help people that were struggling in our church community. I just didn't have the tools to help them. And so back in the uh, late 2000s, went back to school, did my Master of Arts in Marriage and Family Therapy and ran a little side practice while I stayed in the business world after I graduated from that. So that is quite a shift. And I had missed that you started in business, switched to biology, yeah. uh, then went into business, then switched back to marriage and family therapy. Yeah. So tell us a little more about why did you pick marriage and family therapy when you went back? I picked that because if you can help people solve things in the context of their most important relationships, those benefits spill over into the rest of their lives. So that's why I went down that road. And uh, I think just in relation to the, the switching back and forth and that type of thing, how this is, it's kind of like now this has all sort of come together for me because I'm into entrepreneurship. The years of internet marketing are now coming into my launching of the podcast, the developing of the Only You Forever brand. Uh, the years of IT skills that I learned doing business, IT was always kind of my secret sauce. I can program in several different languages. That's coming in now just with setting up the website and that type of thing. And then the master's degree, of course, in marriage and family therapy, is I'm actually bringing the skills of that and the knowledge of that to the table and, and trying to help people with their marriages. <laughs> you remind me of myself. You sound a little bit like a professional learner. So, <laughs> because, because you just told me that you work in business, you've got a master's in marriage and family therapy, but that you also code on the side. Just You call it your secret sauce. Yes, so uh, have you always loved to learn like that? Is that something that came on early or is that something that came in late? No, I've always loved learning and uh, I just love learning new things. I've definitely got some shiny new object syndrome going on. And so if there's something that looks challenging or intriguing, I'd love to learn how to do it. And it's just fascinating. I think I got a part of that from my dad because he, I don't think he ever told me this explicitly, but I, I learned from his example that you can kind of do anything you want. You just have to figure out how, how are you going to do it. You have to figure out how you're going to learn how to do it. Does that make sense? It does. How early do you think you picked that up? I mean, was that in grade school? Was that middle school, high school? When do you remember thinking, oh, that's what I have to do? I think I kind of clued in maybe that I was doing that more shortly after my undergraduate degree. I'd say in my early 20s. And, uh, you know, I think there's a creativity and a curiosity piece that were there through my childhood that just kind of like to create stuff, but understanding and that you can learn how to do all sorts of things uh, in order to be able to do them and how powerful that can be. That really came together for me in my early 20s, I think. So tell us a little bit about that curiosity thing early on. Did your parents feed that at all? Was that just something that you just always did and they kind of tolerated it? How did that go? That's a good question. I think it's something I did and they tolerated. I used to buy... You know, I used to go through catalogs and I'd look for tools that I didn't need and buy them and then try to figure out, <laughs> try to figure out what I was going to do with them. And uh, my wife's been trying to cure me of that ever since and try to figure out what I was going to do with them, right? I think that's a terminal condition, actually. Oh, dear. <laughs> don't, don't tell her that. Okay, well, don't let her listen to this podcast. Yeah. So even when I was a kid in, like, high school, I figured out that, you know, you could get a catalog – and you could buy like knife making supplies. So I, I bought this catalog. I made my brother a really nice knife that he could use for hunting. And, uh, you know, just kind of figure out how to do it. Never made a knife before. Got the book back then. It was before the internet and put it together. Well, we actually had a different thing. When we got catalogs, we actually went out and got the catalogs where the knives were already made. But then we would take the knives and go out in the woods and we would do things like build catapults and stuff. Did you do stuff like that? Not so much. I don't think I had access to woods. <laughs> Do you have uh, brothers and sisters, friends that you hung out with? How did your uh, like early learning 
outside of school? What did that look like? It was mostly in a basement workshop, I would say, or in front of a computer. It would be one of those two things. That sounds really familiar, actually. I had the yeah. same kind of thing. In my parents' house, there's a stairway that goes down halfway to a landing where the front door is and then goes down the rest of the way to the basement. And underneath that stairway, there's a, a closet. And I, I think this, the table's still under there. Well, how soon did you get into computers? Like, do you remember, like, the 8086s and 8088s, 286s? Yes, I started on a, an 8088, and I think there was something called an, an XT. Does that sound right? <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. I remember going from monochrome to color monitors. <laughs> so my dad had an old Epson 8086, and that's where it got stored under there. And I looked inside of it to see how it worked, and I got the little things from Radio Shack and built stuff down okay. there. So do you remember through that process of buying these tools that you didn't need, of finding that you could learn just about anything, or were you just like ravenously curious? Like, Did you have an inkling that you could just sort of learn anything? That's a good question. I think I just wanted to try stuff and I did. And that's kind of how I came through that in, in my teenage years, Steve. And then I think most of my learning through university, which I went to right after high school, that was just done in an academic environment. And then I think by the time I came out of there, you know, that's when the internet was really coming into really blossoming. And, you know, YouTube and Google. And then I realized I could start to do things that, like I'd always wanted to learn how to run a wood lathe. And I always thought I have to get someone out to show me that. Well, by the time I was able to afford one of those and I had my own shop space, I figured out that you could learn all of that with YouTube and just reading stuff on forums. And I just devoured information, and then I'd go out to the shop and try it. So it realized uh, in many ways it was experimental learning. We actually spend a lot of time working with teens in you know, formalized experimental learning. Yeah. Do you have other friends that you know that kind of learn in the same way? Like, did you model that behavior after anything else? I guess I'm just trying to understand, like, where did all that come from? Where did from? that like, come how from? How did you learn that? I don't know because my dad was never in the shop and neither was my mom. And I actually didn't even take any shop stuff in high school. My dad did hire a guy to teach me the basics of MS-DOS back in the day when we had the 8088. I had a teacher in high school in, the, in my last year he showed me Turbo Pascal. That's where I first learned that you could program and make computers do things that you wanted to do. And then after that, I, I kind of baked it on my own. For me, I don't know, you may not want me to say this, but I think it was intrinsic. <laughs> it really was intrinsic. It's just part of who I am. Because you're a, a marriage and family therapist, mm -hmm. I'll just turn this around and ask you some questions. Okay, here we go. <laughs> So reflect then, you know, like think about your parents and think about, you know, the, the characteristics that they have. Are there any common characteristics between your curiosity? Like are either of your parents curious like that just in different ways? Well, the, there's nothing my dad won't try. You know, he's definitely got the entrepreneurial ADHD. And so there's lots of things to try in addition to being willing to try anything. And I think my mom was just very supportive. And there were times when I got stuck on stuff, she'd help me maybe figure out how to do it. But a lot of that I did on my own. I think they just gave me the resources and the the belief in me that I could create. And, you know, when I came out with something completely unexpected that I'd made, uh, there was lots of praise and affirmation there. So you informally did, or your parents informally did, what we have kind of formalized in our business. And I'm totally stealing this from my wife. She's a, She's a fantastic educator. Okay. So what she does and what how she describes it is she says whenever you want to teach students and you want them to really understand, she says you have to uh, create an environment for learning. You have to give them the tools they need to learn. Uh -huh. 
and then you have to step aside and get out of their way. Yep. And it sounds like your parents just did that. Like that was just the environment they created. Yeah, I think you nailed it. You know, there was the physical environment in terms of that, that basement area and they kind of let me do my thing down there. And there was, I think there was a mental environment for it, the support. And you're right, they just let me go do it. That is fascinating. And so your dad's an entrepreneur. That There is a connection. I knew there was a connection. There okay. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how early did you know he was an entrepreneur? Or was he just, he just disappeared and went to work and came back? Like how early did you know that? Uh, I was working for him. I was typing in uh, response cards into like an old, old database, uh, Telemagic Pro or something like that. I can't even quite remember the name. When I was 13 years old. And so I would take the bus downtown to his office and I thought I was I was in the big dollars. I was making six bucks an hour and I would just type in these cards okay. for hours. It was the most brutal work ever. But uh, I got to see him work and I got to see his office working and I got to see employees happening and, and managers and reception and all this different stuff going on. You said your dad will try anything, I think is what you said. Yeah. How early did you know that your dad would just go try stuff? Like are there memories that you remember your dad like – getting something and then showing you how it worked or when i think of him trying stuff it's more in the context of business actually and so i probably started seeing that in my teen years and then uh you know i was in the family businesses on and off uh through my 20s and into my early 30s and so I probably saw it more through there he's not a hands-on person in terms of tools and and making and that kind of stuff so much he just loves trying different things in business and chasing ideas <laughs> mm-hmm. well Thank you for giving me the opportunity to, uh, you know, psychoanalyze this from the yeah. outside, even though I don't have the right degree for it. That's fine. <laughs> it's interesting that neither of your parents were hands-on, and you said that you didn't take a shop class in high school, and yet you had this lab in the basement, mm-hmm. and you think that's intrinsic. I mean, did you watch TV shows? Like, how did you know you wanted a lab? I grew up without a television, and still don't have a television, and so I had lots of time. You know, a lot of it was catalogs. I had this period in my life where I get this fascination. I get every catalog that people can mail to me, which was awesome. You had all this stuff to look at, right? And then I started to want some of the stuff, especially stuff that I could use to make things. And it just kind of came from there. And I, I uh, feel like I'm not giving you a concrete answer, but there's just that uh, I just love making stuff. No, you're giving me a great answer because I think this is actually beautiful. And let me see if I can tie it together because okay. we've been watching teenagers for a couple of years now, and I'm – you know, it, it's interesting because I didn't know all this about you, and I, so this just sure. naturally occurred in our conversation here. But what it looks like is exactly what Debbie says uh, works in almost any environment, even if you're unintentional about it. That if you have a curious child, and I think most kids are curious, yeah, and you create an environment or give them an environment, or uh, in your parents' case, maybe tolerate an environment. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not quite sure what that basement thing was. I think my parents tolerated my environment down under the stairs. Yeah. And you know, so you create that environment and you you give them the tools because it sounds like your parents kind of supported that to some extent, and your mom, yeah, you know, uh, helped from time to time, but mostly just stayed out of the way and let you explore and be curious. Yeah. And that's a perfect recipe. And it's interesting that now. You know, you've taken that and, you know, now you go learn things on YouTube that, you know, and you've yep. uh, basically learned mostly to code on your own. Sounds like you got a little bit of a jump start, but you, you know, jumped straight into coding and got into business and realized you needed to know more about relationships. You went back and got a master's in, in MFT. Mm-hmm. You just sound like a curious person to me. 
I am that. I love learning. Yeah. And, you know, even in my current business right now, Steve, I, I had to draw the line on myself last year and say, okay, you got to stop learning and you got to do this stuff because there's fear in launching uh, for an entrepreneur, right? And, you know, there's a lot more safety in researching for hours and hours, but I had to stop myself and say, okay, we get, it's time we got to go do, we got to build something here. I live in that tension of forcing myself back and forth, but you know, I have to go back to the learning every once in a while and the curiosity because it refreshes me and energizes me. Well, you don't need me to tell you that you definitely should feed that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. So you and I have talked about this a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the relationship between your formalized school learning and this informal uh, environment that you had outside of school that you always sort of had. Which informal environment? The lab in the basement, the reading on the side, the buying these catalogs and trying stuff. Is there a relationship between your formalized learning and the outside learning outside of the formalized learning environment for you? Well, that's a good question. I think with the formalized learning, and I don't know if I'm going where your question is looking for me to go, but the formalized learning, I realize that there are certain things and certain skills that you have to learn in a structured environment, especially in psychotherapy. You're dealing with things that are very intimate in people's minds, and you can't mess with that. And so part of that education is that's so critical is not just the uh, didactic teaching, but the actual supervision that you get. And so I think for learning, for me, there's times when I realize, okay, I need something formal. And I, I look for what I think might be a good option and I go get that. And then other times I prefer to just learn myself because the consequences of mistakes are very small. And I tend to learn faster than a lot of people, so it would be painful for me to go to a class. So if I can avoid that, I, I will. That's an interesting perspective. I'm not sure that I have thought of it just exactly like that. Okay. The idea that formalized learning has a strong supervision component. This degree in particular does. I mean, how does it relate to your postgrad work? Well, I mean, I'm not necessarily thinking of it in postgrad as much as I'm thinking of it in terms of any educational environment, whether it be middle school or high school or yeah. you know college graduate school. In our environment, we, I mean, I don't know what your formalized education looked like, but my formalized education looked a lot like teachers at the front writing on boards and speaking a lot. Yeah. But there was always that component where at some point they would stop talking from the front and they mm -hmm. would give us the supervised feedback. I mean, it was less so in graduate school. And Peter mentioned graduate school is a fire hose from the front, and then feedback you got was, you know, from the homework later. But okay. certainly in high school and middle school, there was a lot of teacher walking through the room, through the aisles, and kind of looking over my shoulder and making some comments here and there. Mm -hmm. But I never thought about the supervision. But we actually do that in our classes, and I guess I'd never thought about that formally. But would you think of that as sort of like a quality control? What is that exactly? That's pretty interesting. You know, for the marriage and family therapy degree and counseling in general, that the supervision you get there comes on a few levels. It's the therapist watching you do your work and helping you tweak that as you go, sometimes through like a one-way mirror and literally will call into the room if you're going down the wrong road. And your client knows that they're getting this type of therapy because they're paying a huge discounted fee to see a student. But actually intervening, kind of tweaking it as you go, all the way to when you're done, you come back in the room. She's like, okay, what was happening for you because you weren't able to connect with the person on this point? And then they might drive you back into your own family of origin issues to say, what personal growth do you need to go through so you can be more available to your client in that area? So it's really this huge uh, skill development and personal development experience all happening at once. Yeah, I don't remember that in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, in, in physics, they pretty much throw you to the sharks and you sink or swim. Yeah. The value for me and graduate school mostly came when I was allowed to get into the lab and start tinkering on my own. Mm. And the supervision at that point was mostly from our advisors, you know, looking at the results of experiments and then commenting on whether they thought the results were consistent or inconsistent and asking us about the conditions of the experiments and yeah. things like that. So. It's still there, but from a different perspective, I suppose. I think so. In, in some ways, the counseling room was my lab. And, you know, we had the same teaching from the front experience as well. Uh, but there was this other component with it, too. So I'm going to actually take our left turn here because I, I'm curious about your perspective on this. In the digital age, you know, we have Google and Facebook and Wikipedia and YouTube out there to go learn tons of things. And you've already brought this up, actually, mm -hmm. as something that you do. In that environment, talk about people being, quote, educated. With all that out there, what does it mean to be educated now? Great question. I think there are some, I was wanting to use the word skills, but I need a different word. You know, there are some values, and when I say values, I don't mean like the moral values, that type of thing, but I think there's value that you add to the marketplace mm. that comes from who you are as a person. And it's very hard to create that value from Wikipedia or watching YouTube videos. And I'm referring back to, again, the supervision in, in my degree. So that personal feedback, the requirement that we actually experience group therapy and with our own stuff as part of learning to do group therapy, you know, just as one subset of that, that's formative in terms of who you are. And that shapes how you relate to others when you're actually doing the work. And I don't think I'm convinced you can't buy that online. I don't think I've ever had anyone give that answer. Okay. So let's probe that a little bit. I'll give you an example. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. There's lots of people in my space that start marriage blogs. And, you know, I kind of, at the start, I downplayed my education, but then I realized that there's there's something a little bit different going on because they're speaking out of their, their experience of, of their marriage. And that is a huge thing. And those people that do this, they end up helping hundreds, thousands of other people. And that's awesome. But there's something about formalizing that education where, you know, I can speak from my own marriage, I can quote the research, and I know how to validate that. And I can apply that to real life situations. And in one sense, this is my USP, it's my unique selling proposition, right, that I blend those things together. And I'm using that as a differentiator in the marketplace. So you'll, you'll forgive the natural bias there, but this business really it causes you to fall back on trusting not only your knowledge and your experience in life, but the, the who you are part of it to bring that out and create value from all of those things blended together. So I don't often hear this. I hear this once in a while on the podcast, but not, not often. And you're, you're touching on this part of the deep human uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And at the risk of being sounding trite on this, You've already mentioned that you think it's important. How important do you think it is? Well, let me start here. It's very, very important to me because, you know, in entrepreneurship, there's a point where you just have to push through and you have to do the work with the faith that it's going to bear results. I'm learning that as I do this. And to drive you through that, you have to have a very deep sense of purpose. And that deep sense of purpose is really, for me, is grounded on who God has made me to be. And my belief that that is a unique contribution to the world. And I want to serve out of that place. I want to do what I am. That's a, a slogan I often use for myself is I want to do what I am. Not that I am what I do, but I do what I am. And so I think it's really, really important 
that we understand who we are and we take that as a, a sense of calling and serve in our careers and businesses out of that place. So as, uh, I mean, in the marketplace, looking at that, can you pull out maybe a couple of examples of businesses that have kind of revolved around that uniqueness, things that you see? I don't know if I can give you specific examples, Steve, but I see this in the resurgence of, you know, back in the good old days, you, you had the baker and the butcher and the very localized sort of brick and mortar. And I think we have a version of that coming on the internet with a resurgence of small businesses that are internet based and people who are building platforms to offer services in a wide variety of industries out of who they are and what really makes them passionate and what they're fascinated by. And out of that place, they're creating businesses, whether it's internet marketing, whether it's even what you're doing with uh, TTI Invent or myself with Only You Forever. So I actually did not mean to go here, okay. <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. Do you think that people are looking for that uniqueness in business? And do you think that's related to kind of this anti or you know counter uh, corporate mentality and the you know the small business resurgence? And I don't actually know if it's a resurgence or not. I don't have any data on that. Yeah. But do you think that in society we've shifted? you know, kind of far one way and maybe are moving back toward the personal side of this. Absolutely. To me, Steve, when, you know, it's kind of like the quintessential money blogger even, and that all of a sudden, you know, people have, you know, communities were, were low tech back in the day and there was a lot of engagement and stuff going on. TV came in, the internet came in, you could get everything you needed at home without going out. Amazon can deliver the rest. And people, I think, have gotten isolated and then in their isolation have gone back to the mediums that they are familiar with, like, t like the internet. And are now finding, oh man, there's like this real human being out there and she's going through exactly the same stuff I'm going through raising my children. And she speaks into my life. I'm going to follow her. And so there's this real sense of connection because the person that she's following, this blogger, is being herself and just being present and bringing her personality to her website through her writing, through her podcast and whatever it might be. That's an interesting perspective. Well, I would love to dive into that, but we are running a little low on time on okay. this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to switch to our last question, and so we kind of warmed up to it a little bit. With this backdrop that we've painted in our conversation here, what is the purpose of an education? You know, I struggle with that a lot for quite a while because I had I went and got this Bachelor of Science with biology, and never used as a direct application the biology learning that I had. So I don't know if I ended up just justifying myself this way, but I think I think there's some real truth here, and that is I have a, observed and come to really believe that even if you take an education that you don't end up quote-unquote using, it really sharpens your critical thinking. And in the whole world of sort of innovating and creating and all these types of things, you know, you can eliminate a whole lot of poor choices without having to try them if you have this critical thinking skill. And so I see that as a huge, huge benefit for learning and continuing to learn is that there's always this critical thinking going on. I don't have other words for it. So that's that's what I would really kind of highlight. I think we'll wrap it right there because I think that's a very important skill. And honestly, if we can learn to think critically, it serves us for the rest of our life. Yeah. I definitely agree with and that. And in many domains, right? Yes. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, what's the best way for our audience to interact with you? Sure. Uh, just check out www.onlyyouforever.com. We have a weekly marriage podcast there. 
And if you're married or thinking about getting married, I'd highly recommend that to you. And I'd be glad to have uh, your audience uh, take advantage of that resource as well. Excellent. Well, we will certainly point people that direction in the show notes. Thank you, Caleb, for taking some time to speak to us today. Thank you, Steve, for having me on your show. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com podcast. Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Mm-hmm.